Good morning. My name is Pam Komarowski. The scripture reading today comes from the Old Testament books of Second Chronicles and Jeremiah. I will be reading from chapter 36, verses 15 through 21, and chapter 52, verse 27b. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, repeatedly sent his prophets to warn them, for he had compassion on his people and his temple. But the people mocked these messengers of God and despised their words. They scoffed at the prophets until the Lord's anger could no longer be restrained and nothing could be done. So the Lord brought the king of Babylon against them. The Babylonians killed Judah's young men, even chasing after them into the temple. But they had pity on on the people, killing both young men and young women, the old and the infirm. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. The king took home to Babylon all the articles, large and small, used in the temple of God, and the treasures from both the Lord's temple and from the palace of the king and his officials. Then his army burned the temple of God, tore down the walls of Jerusalem, burned all the palaces, and completely destroyed everything of value. The few who survived were taken as exiles to Babylon, and they became servants to the king and his sons, until the kingdom of Persia came to power. So the message of the Lord spoke through Jeremiah was fulfilled. The land finally enjoyed its Sabbath rest, lying desolate until the 70 years were fulfilled, just as the prophet had said. So the people of Judah were sent into exile from their land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Pam. Well, we are beginning a new sermon series today, or a message series. We are just finishing up a a book series on the book of Hebrews, and so now I want to pivot and go towards more of a thematic kind of a series, but new series today. About a little over half a month ago, the world sat stunned as the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, France, went up in flames. And I remember receiving a text from Morgan on that day, and she said, Notre Dame is on fire, and just couldn't believe it. And the world sat stunned as they watched the the roof and the spire collapse, and incredibly, the firefighters were able to put out the fire before the cathedral was a total loss. And so the biggest losses were the roof and the spire, as you can see in one of the upcoming pictures, and and the... um, they credit the, the builders and the engineers credit the, the medieval structure for not losing more of the building that went up in flames. And now they're looking into why the fire started and the investigators are searching for an answer and, and the investigators are coalescing around two theories for why the fire started. The first one being that there was a possible electrical short in the bells that would have caused the fire, which would make sense with the roof because it was near the roof. And the second theory is that they are uh, wondering if the restoration workers who are restoring the cathedral were careless because they discovered cigarette butts on the scaffolding. The scaffolding company vehemently denies the second theory, <laughs> if you read about it. But that's what they're wondering right now. But what was really interesting in the wake of this fire of Notre Dame was one of the reactions that came out to the fire. The day after the fire, Rolling Stone ran an article called, How Should France Rebuild Notre Dame? And within the article, there was a quote that drew all sorts of criticism. It was a lightning rod quote made by this man, Patricio Del Real, who is a uh, a scholar with Harvard. And he says this 
in the wake of the fire of the cathedral. He says, the building, meaning the cathedral, was so overburdened with meaning that its burning feels like an act of liberation. And that quote has uh, has drawn so much criticism because he names the act of this iconic cathedral burning and this testament to who France is as an act of liberation. France is having an identity crisis right now about who they're going to be, and traditionally they've been a Catholic country, and now this burning of the cathedral is sparking all these debates and all these questions of who are we as a country. But what's interesting is I look at the fire of Notre Dame Cathedral, and I read that as a metaphor for also something that's happening here in the United States. And I think the fire of Notre Dame Cathedral is a metaphor for the fact that here in the United States, Christianity is on fire, meaning Christianity is burning down. Here in the United States, Christianity, as we've known it as a nation, is really on fire, and it's burning down. Right now, our country of America is in this transition, and we're honestly coming out of that transition between what we're going to call Christendom to post-Christianity. And I think the fire of Notre Dame Cathedral is sort of a marker for this transition nearing its completion as we transition from a po- or from a Christian nation, from Christendom, to a post-Christian nation. Now, what do I mean when I say the word Christendom? Well, I mean that in 313 AD, the emperor of Rome, his name was Emperor Constantine, he issues this Edict of Milan. And the Edict of Milan declares that the Roman Empire is now a Christian empire. And the good thing that came out of that is now all this persecution that the Christians have experienced in the Roman Empire is stopped. But the bad part about that is now the national identity is merged with this grassroots Jesus movement to create what's called Christendom in Rome. And that's what I mean when I'm using the term Christendom to describe what once was in America. You might say that from founding in 1776 until about 2010, America lived in what we are going to call Christendom. Many people referred to America as a Christian nation. Most people had a basic uh, familiarity with Scripture Most people in America attended some sort of church or had a church that they called their home. On Sunday, much of the population of America was in a church or attending a worship service. Uh, The church had a central role in the lives of the people. Ministers had a certain uh, authority in the public eye. Uh, most people had a basic familiarity with who Jesus is, and they knew the basic narrative of Jesus, whether they believed it or not, but they knew that he died and rose from the grave. And America was certainly founded upon Judeo-Christian principles, but Christianity, all this to say that in Christendom, and for most of America's life, Christianity played a central role in our culture here as Americans. But now things have changed And now, within the past decade or so, we have been making a shift into what's called post-Christianity, where we're looking around at our nation, and it's in a completely different place than what it once was. Way back in 2004 already, uh, there was a man by the name of Dr. Albert Moeller who wrote an article, and he wrote this in his article back in 2004 about the changing landscape of America when it comes to Christianity. He said this, he said, In candor, we must admit that the church has been displaced. Once an authoritative voice in the culture, the church is often dismissed and even more often ignored. The displacement of the church is characteristic of the process of secularization, which has now so thoroughly altered the landscape of American culture. The worldview of most Americans is now thoroughly secularized, revolving around the self and its concerns, and based on relativism as an axiom. We Americans have become our own best friend, our own therapist, our own priest, and our own lawgiver, 
the old order is shattered, and the new order is upon us. So already back in 2004, Dr. Albert Moeller is realizing and naming this change that he sees in the American culture and when it comes to how the American culture views Christianity. And so within the last decade or so, we have been transitioning into this post-Christianity environment where now the Christendom of the past is gone, and now we're dealing with an entirely different culture around us. And back in 2004, Albert Moeller describes that culture as displacement of Christianity. I think in 2004, he's naming this dynamic where Christianity is sort of pushed to the margins, it's marginalized, it's no longer the center of our culture, it's no longer the center of our lives, the church is no longer this linchpin in the lives of Americans. It's been displaced to the margins as something that doesn't matter or shouldn't be listened to. And now, I think for certain, we can say that we are starting to see an outright hostility here in 2019, an outright hostility to Christianity. There's a story that came out in 2015. This man named Kelvin Cochran became the chief of the fire department in the city of Atlanta. And this man is a believer And we're going to watch his story of the price that Kelvin paid for being a Christian as the fire chief in Atlanta. Let's watch the video. We're always the same. Thank you, Tony. I told them that I did not want to be poor because we were very poor. That I wanted a family because my dad had left my mother and that I wanted to be a firefighter. Being one of the first African-Americans on the Shreveport Fire Department had significant challenges. There was a designated bed in the dormitory for the black firefighter. We had designated plates, forks, and spoons so that no one would eat from the same plates, forks, and spoons of the black firefighter. It gave me a conviction that should I ever be in a position of leadership, that I would never allow anyone to have the same experience I had as a minority. And so when I became fire chief, I instituted having no racism, sexism, territorialism, favoritism, uh, cronyism, or any ism that would interfere with a wholesome work environment for any people group within the fire department. Eight years after serving as fire chief in Shreveport, I was appointed fire chief in the city of Atlanta. President Obama was elected, and he appointed me to the highest fire official in the United States of America, the United States Fire Administrator. And I loved that job and was serving there for about 10 months. The city of Atlanta elected a new mayor and recruited me back to the city of Atlanta, and I served him for five years when I was terminated from employment. Given the efforts that uh, myself as Fire Chief of Atlanta and our group put together uh, in creating this inclusive, diverse, uh, tolerant organization, I was really surprised that writing a book for a Christian men Bible study, 162 pages encouraging men to be the husbands and fathers and leaders that God has called us to be, uh, would put me in an adverse position against the city of Atlanta because of a few pages I wrote explaining biblical marriage and biblical sexuality. In fact, the city of Atlanta conducted an investigation and found out that I had never discriminated against anyone. However, 
I was terminated after my 30-day suspension in spite of that. After having lived a life of discrimination, providing leadership that eliminates discrimination was a high priority for me. So having been terminated for the perception of discrimination was very, very hurtful and really drives my passion for seeking justice and the fight for truth. I just think this story is wild because here you have a man who is growing up being discriminated against because he's a black man and rises through the ranks of the fire department to become the chief of fire in Atlanta. And then he actually gets appointed to become the chief in the nation. But because this man is a Christian, and because he wrote a book for his men's Bible study at his church, and because in that book he upholds biblical marriage and biblical Christianity and biblical sexuality, he loses his job. That's the price that this man has paid. We're living in a culture where people are starting to lose their jobs for their beliefs as Christians. We are transitioning from Christendom with Christianity at the center of our lives and Christianity applying to a majority people or a majority people at least claiming the Christian label whether they believe it or not to a place of post-Christianity where now Christians are starting to pay the price for what they believe. I just think it's so radical how he grows up in a world of discrimination and then he experiences discrimination for what he believes. But this is the world that we're living in. It's a different world. And when we look around and we see stories like Calvin's, it makes us think to ourselves, we are living in a place that is so far from the America that we knew. And we are living in a place that is so far from our homes. It almost doesn't feel like home. For many of us, this is not the country that we grew up in. For many of us, we grew up in a country where on Sundays the family goes to church along with most of the people in our culture. We grew up in America where most people had a basic understanding of the biblical narrative. We grew up in, a, in, a, in America where most people agreed upon Christian values whether they believed them or not. We grew up in America where Christianity had a central place in our culture. And now we're looking around at an America that's becoming increasingly hostile to what we believe. And it feels so far from home. We are entering into a place where we are living not in our homes anymore. It can often feel so far from home. The Bible describes this feeling of being so far from the home that you know in this word called exile. And exile is actually a pretty large theme in the Bible, and it's often overlooked. I don't think it's an intentional thing, but we often overlook this theme of exile, and it's this gigantic part of the biblical narrative. And so what I want to do is I want to look at the biblical narrative of exile. So when we open up our Bibles... Our biblical narrative begins with God creating the heavens and the earth, and he creates this universe, and in the universe he places the earth, and on the earth he places his first two humans, Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve have this special role within God's good and perfect creation. Everything is as it should be. And Adam and Eve have this role of being God's imagers and his rain spreaders and reflecting who God is to the rest of creation. They're his missional agents who are to spread God's name and his reign all over the entire globe. But Adam and Eve are not content with that incredible role as God's reign spreaders, as his sub-rulers. And so in an act of rebellion, they stretch out to try to seize the role of God himself. And in doing so, they introduce sin into the world. They introduce disobedience, corrupt God's good creation, and sever their relationship with God. But God is not content to let the earth languish in this sinful condition and let the earth languish with his people being separated from him in sin. And so he sticks to the original mission that he always had. 
And that was to raise up a people for his name, to raise up a, a group of people who would be his imagers, his rain spreaders, and reflect who he is to the rest of creation. And so he comes to this man named Abraham, and he makes Abraham a promise. And he said, I am going to give you, Abraham, so many children that they're going to number the amount of stars in the sky, and I'm going to take those children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren and your descendants, and I'm going to form them into a nation. And this people group, this nation, is going to pick up the baton and have that special rain-spreading status of being my missional agents of bringing my rain to this earth. And God makes good on his promise, and he multiplies Abraham into this nation of people called Israel or called the Hebrews. And God takes care of his people, Israel. And on top of all the promises he's already made, them, he gives them this home to live in called the promised land. And, and he reaffirms his covenant with these, these his promise with his nation. And, and again, Israel, as God's people, are going to have the job of being his rain spreaders and reflecting who he is to all the other nations in the world. They are his kingdom priests, his rain spreaders, his reflectors, charged with showing the rest of the world who God is. And God gives them this land to live in called the promised land. And he leads them through this wilderness wandering. And he leads them into this land of Canaan, this land that God originally gave to Abraham. And now he's bringing his his nation that he promised to Abraham back into the promised land. And these people are going to make a living there. And they're going to settle down. And God gives them these incredible military victories as they conquer the land and begin to settle down. And God's people begin to settle down, but it's sort of this tenuous situation because you'll have an attack from an enemy and then this local leader will be raised up by God to take care of that enemy and then another enemy would attack and a, God would raise up a judge as a local leader to take care of that attack and so forth. And, and the people as they settle the land are saying, you know, we're looking around at all these other nations and these other nations are very different from who we are because we just have these judges who fight for us. All these other nations have kings and all these other nations have a, a monarchy and a democracy or a, a monarchy. That's how they're structured in power, and, and we have a theocracy, and we don't even have a real human king to point to. And so these people are saying, we're really weird, and we're really different. And so they go to their leader at the time, whose name was Samuel, and they say, Samuel, give us a king like all these other nations. And this is a big slap in the face to God, because God was their king. It was a theocracy. God was in charge. He was their king. But God says, no, go ahead, Samuel, give them a king. And so they elect a king. And the second king that Israel ever had was this rock star of a man named David. And David is called, in the Bible, he's called a man after God's own heart. And, and David, first and foremost, is a godly leader. He loves the Lord. But he's also a shrewd political guy. He makes really brilliant political decisions. He's a charismatic leader who can really rally people behind their national identity as Israel and God's people. And, and he is, the land experiences relative peace while he's in charge. He is a rock star of a leader. And also, he is the typology of who an Israelite should be. And so the Bible lifts up David as a picture of a rain spreader of God, a picture of God's reflector. And so if you're thinking of Israel's story like an ark, from the 12 tribes to David is like the arrow pointing up. We're ascending in the story to this typology, this epitome of who an Israelite should be, which is the King David. But then after David, the arrow begins to point downward. And king after king that succeeds David is going to go further and further away from the Lord and run Israel right into the ground. And so after David is king, his son Solomon takes over, and Solomon starts out okay as a wise man, but he marries 700 wives, and he makes all these diplomatic treaties, and he ends up caring more about property and physical wealth than he does about God. 
And then after Solomon, his son Rehoboam becomes king. And Rehoboam is this young buck, and he is the typology of a high school student. And Rehoboam asks advice of his buddies, and he asks advice of his elders. And like all of us did when we were high school students, for some reason we think our peers know more than our parents. We all have done this. We've all been there. So high schoolers, I'm not just calling you out. I'm saying we've been there too. I don't know why we think that when we're high schoolers, but we think our peers are smarter than our elders and our parents. It's just not cool. I realize that when you're in high school, it's not cool to do what your parents say or what your elders say, but they know way more than you do. And so Rehoboam takes the advice of his buddies rather than the advice of his elders, and he threatens to rule like a tyrant. And so he says, my father Solomon whipped you with whips. I'm going to whip you with scorpions, and my father taxed you like crazy. Now I'm going to tax you even harder. And so what happens? The northern tribes of Israel say, hey, we're not having this. And so they rebel, and this civil war breaks out, and now the northern tribes of Israel break off and form their own country, and the southern tribes stay put. And so now you have these two nations because there's been this civil war and this fracturing. And you have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, with the capital of Jerusalem being in Judah, and then Israel makes Samaria, the city of Samaria, their capital. And this is just the start of things going bad because king after king after Rehoboam chases after anything and everything but God. They chase after women, like we said, Solomon had 700 wives, and they chase after money, and they chase after power. And on top of that, there's just this constant ruse of assassination happening where one will kill another to take the throne, and somebody else is going to kill somebody else. It's, it's really a brutal narrative. And worst of all, the kings worship other gods. And we see this in the fact that just a name drop here, there's this man named Menahem and he ripped open pregnant women and there were other two kings, Ahaz and Manasseh, that were told sacrifice their own sons to false gods. And so the hearts of these kings are just carried so far away from the Lord. And meanwhile, God sends these men called the prophets and these guys tell everybody what they don't want to hear because they tell everybody the truth. And they tell everybody, you're not doing what God called you to do. And he's telling them, if you keep going in this path, God has destruction planned for you. He loves you, but you are going down a path that God will, it ends in destruction. You are not the people God created you to be. You are not doing what God called you to do. And so these prophets had a hard time because nobody listened to them. And eventually, the things get so bad that the Lord begins to allow the destruction to happen. Because in 722 BC, this kingdom of Assyria is a rising power on the world stage, and they march into the capital city of Samaria in Israel, and Israel falls to Samaria, or Israel falls to Assyria, and then now begins sort of this power stage where these different nations are jockeying for power, and now Babylon is rising to power, and so Babylon is rising to power, and Assyria is waning in power, and Babylon marches into Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria, and in 612 BC, Babylon captures Nineveh, and now Assyria falls to Babylon, and Babylon has just staked its claim as the most powerful nation in the world. And meanwhile, while these nations are fighting, and while they're jockeying for national uh, supremacy, Judah is sort of caught up in the middle of all this because you have Egypt making alliances and they're kind of stuck between Assyria and Egypt and Babylon's attacking Assyria and Egypt is allying with Assyria to try to fight off the Babylonians. And so Jerusalem or Judah is getting caught up in all of this 
And by the end of their time as a nation, they are really just a vassal state because by this time, they're just kind of paying off everybody to keep them off their backs. All right, they're just kind of like, okay. And and they're really almost fully in service of Babylon at this point, but they're just paying off Babylon like crazy. All their output is going to Babylon just as a last-ditch effort to kind of remain sort of independent from everybody. So let's keep away. Well, things go really south with the final king of Judah, which is this man named Zedekiah, because sort of in a last-ditch effort, he leads a rebellion against Babylon. And so King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon just cannot sit idly by. And so Zedekiah leads this revolt, and King Nebuchadnezzar needs to respond, and so he marches against the city of Jerusalem in Judah, and he lays siege to the capital city of Jerusalem in Judah, and that lasts 18 months. And after 18 months, finally the walls collapse and the Babylonian troops march in and they march right into the temple and they lay the city to waste and they set the city on fire and just raise it to the ground. And this is where we get to our scripture today. This is what happened when the walls of Jerusalem fell. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, repeatedly sent his prophets to warn them, for he had compassion and on his people and his temple, right? You see this in the fact that he's sending warning signs saying, hey, you got to stop. You see his love for his people. Hey, you got to stop. Well, did people listen to the message they didn't want to hear? But the people mocked these messengers of God, so no, and despised their words. They scoffed at the prophets until the Lord's anger could no longer be restrained and nothing could be done. So the Lord brought the king of Babylon against them. The Babylonians killed Judah's young men, even chasing after them all the way into the most holy place, the temple. They had no pity on the people, killing both young men and young women, the old and the sick. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. The king took home to Babylon all the articles, large and small, used in the temple of God, and the treasures from both the Lord's temple and from the palace of the king and his officials. Then his army burned the temple of God, tore down the walls of Jerusalem, burned all the palaces, and completely destroyed everything of value. So what once was this hopeful, incredible story of the people of God reflecting who he is to all the other nations ends with the people of God looking back at their city that has been raised to the ground is now on fire, with many of them lying dead. Because the people of Judah, God's people, these Jews, rather than reflecting who God is to the rest of the world, they reflected the rest of the world. They didn't do their jobs. And now these people of Judah have to walk away and begin this 800-mile journey. They have to walk away from the capital city that they once knew and loved. And the very house of God is part of that rubble that's now lying on fire when what once was the city of Jerusalem, their pride and joy. So here's what happens. If you survived the attack from the Babylonians when Jerusalem fell, if you survived, here's what you're in for. The few who survived were taken as exiles to Babylon, and they became servants to the king and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. And so now these Jews, after their city is laid waste and is now smoking in ruins, have to head northward and then eventually uh, southeastward to this foreign city of Babylon, which is an 800-mile journey. I mapped it, and it's about 800 miles if you drag a, a line on Google Earth. And I compared that to, that would be like us marching from Mequon Nature Preserve to Atlanta. Can you imagine our sick trying to, our elderly trying to march from Mequon Nature Preserve to Atlanta? You'd, you wouldn't survive. In the same way that these, many of these Jews didn't survive, even after so many of them were killed off by the attacking Babylonians when they laid siege to the city. And so now these Jews, having 
feeling, uh, feeling the, the loss of everything they once knew and loss of their home, now need to make this long journey to a place that's completely foreign, that's hostile to what they believe, and nothing of what they know. These Jews have to march to Babylon. And I tell you this whole narrative because in the same way that the Jews had to march into exile and march into a home that's not their own, we are marching into a home that is not our own. We are marching into a foreign place that we don't know. We are living in a world that we don't recognize. We are living in a country that's very different from the one that we knew growing up. We're living in a place that doesn't hold our values, doesn't hold what we believe, and scoffs at what we believe is outright hostile to what we believe. So in the same way that Judah marches into exile, the American church is marching into exile. And so I say all this to say, what does it mean for us as God's faithful people to live into faithfulness to the Lord in a place that is not our home? What does it mean for us to be faithful to God as we begin to live in a nation that we don't recognize? What does it look like to be faithful and walk faithfully with the Lord in a country that is hostile toward us and a country that is not our home? What does it mean to be the faithful people of God when you are so far from home? That's what this series is all about.